The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the, the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Now, from the outside, it doesn't look like it's necessary, but see, the outside is always deceiving. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together this evening to study your word that your word sheds light on the nature of history, your plan for history, and also opens our eyes to understand that there is more that is going on in, in the world and in history. There is more to the affairs of mankind and the uh, politics of the day than simply what meets the eye, that there is indeed an angelic conflict that rages behind the scenes and that often influences the direction of empires and nations and kings. Father, we know that uh, your word is more powerful than anything, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We pray that you would help us to uh, understand the impact of the angelic conflict on history as we study these things tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 is one of the key chapters in opening up, as it were, pulling back a curtain from our eyes to help us to understand that there really is more going on in the world, in human history, in the, in the affairs of man, the affairs of politics, than simply what we perceive with our natural senses. That if we as believers understand what the Bible is teaching here, it ought to sort of give us a new understanding, a new dimension to our understanding of what is taking place. It should make us stop and think that when we hear about, uh, as it has been the last six months with the violence in Israel, and, and in fact going back to the beginning of this last intifada in September of, of 2000, we should stop and think about what might be going on in the angelic realm, in the uh, realm of... Uh, of the demonic struggle and what Satan is trying to do. In fact, when we look at this passage, a couple of things are going to stand out for us. One is that we learn that there is this uh, other dimension of the angels and what's involved there, but also 
how we as believers are to interact with that. And we also see some things about what Satan is attempting to do in human history. Now, last time we got as far as about verse 9. So let's just get a quick review of this chapter and place ourselves in it again. This is Daniel 10 begins Daniel's last vision, which is covered in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12. It takes place in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, as I stated last time by comparing passages in Ezra 1, Ezra 4. We see that the first wave of Jewish returnees has taken place under Ezra. They, they're met with some resistance. There are some problems in the land. Daniel has heard about the problems. It's awfully reminiscent of what will take place a, a hundred years later under Nehemiah. And so he's heard that. He's also given this vision, and so he is troubled and disturbed by that, that vision. He goes on a, a lengthy fast. And after the end, we, because of what we see in verse 4, now on the 24th day of the first month, in other words, two days or three days after the end, two days after the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Daniel stops his feast and he has another vision. He's left, uh, left Babylon. He is on the uh, river bank of the Tigris. And just a point of observation here, when he is so disturbed and he is so upset, and he's going through this time when he's not going to shower, he's not going to anoint himself, he's not going to eat, rather than impose his own personal misery on everybody around him, he makes sure that he goes off by himself. You know, that's an important point. Sometimes we forget that when we're going through difficult times, while it is important to have close friends that we can be encouraged by, it's also somewhat of a self-absorbed imposition to expect uh, everybody to want to hear about all of our troubles. And so we need to be careful of that and uh, who we share our troubles with. We don't want to come across as as, uh, as whining and being self-absorbed and just focusing on our problems. So Daniel's concerned. He goes off by himself. And in the midst of this, in verse 5, we re- a man appears to him. We studied this last time. We compared the uh, representation of this personage in Daniel 10.5 with Jesus Christ and his appearance in uh, Revelation chapter 1. And we recognize that this first figure that appears to him in, in Daniel 10.5 and following is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And so last time we studied the doctrine of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ and his various manifestations, recognizing that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten, that is, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who has appeared and revealed him in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. So we saw the distinction between theophanies, which is an appearance in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, and a Christophany, which is an appearance in the New Testament, uh, Jesus Christ after the resurrection, after his for example, in Acts chapter 8, where he appears to uh, Paul on the Damascus Road. And Daniel has this vision in verse 7, and he, we read there, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. This is a vision given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
A great terror fell on them, so that they fled to hide themselves, not unlike Paul's companions on the Damascus road. Verse 8, Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty, and I retained no strength. And remember, Daniel is between 85 and 90 years of age, and he sees this overpowering vision of what is going to take place in Israel's future and he has an emotional reaction, not that he goes into ecstatics, but that it really hits him hard. It leaves him physically shaken, trembling. And he says in verse 9, where we'll pick it up this week, I heard the sound of his words. Literally, it's more like the noise of his words. He can't distinguish the words. He just hears the reverberation of the words. But he can't distinguish exactly and precisely what is being said by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not unlike what happens to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. At that time, John is on the island of Patmos where he was exiled by uh, Domitian, the emperor at that time. And he doesn't have anyone around him. He's out there by himself. He's on the island. Frequently he would take walks around the island. It's a rather barren-looking landscape from pictures that I've seen. But there's one thing that's common to almost any part of the island, because it's not very large, and that is you can hear the surf pounding on the rocks on the shore. Now, I don't know about any of you and your backgrounds and your experience, but I know that a few times I have been on a coast where there's been a, a, some waves coming in continuously, and it can be quite a roar. remember one time years ago I was attending a uh, wilderness leadership seminar at Wheaton College, and it was about three weeks of backpacking and whitewater canoeing, and we ended up on the shore of Lake Superior. Now, Lake Superior has a pretty steady uh, drumbeat of waves coming in. In fact, it's a dull roar, and we ended up there with a four-day solo. I never thought I could go more than 24 hours without food, but we had to go uh, four days without food, which was more than I anticipated. And yet this whole time, it just a steady war. You have one wave after another coming in. It was you, you just didn't have a, you know, a, it wasn't a, a sound that, that changed. It was just a, like a dull roar. And I remember when we finally left and got away from the, uh, got away from the beach. How amazing it seems so quiet all of a sudden. Now that's the idea that John has for a point of comparison here. When he hears the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he says the only thing that he could compare Jesus' voice to was like the sound or the voice of many waters. So he's thinking about this pounding, uh, the, the, the pounding surf on the shore of Patmos. Well, Daniel says much the same thing here. I heard the sound of his, of his words and it's it's this, this steady drumbeat of noise, but he can't really distinguish what it is. But the whole vision is so overpowering, not unlike the vision of God that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, that he falls on his face and he is unconscious. He says, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Now, this is a sign of obedience or worship to God recognition of divine authority, and it reminds me of uh, Proverbs chapter 1, where we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He is demonstrating his awe and respect for the authority of, of God 
and, and you get the impression when you look at these passages in Scripture like John and, and Revelation chapter 1 before Jesus Christ and Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 before the throne room of God and, and Ezekiel and uh, here that when God appears and you see his manifestation of his glory, that it, it is like there's nothing else you can do except prostrate yourself before God. The, the presence of God is self-authenticating. You don't say, well, who is that? What's that blinding flash of light when you come into the, the very presence of God? His presence is so overpowering and so overwhelming and communicates of itself who and what God is that you don't have any choice but to bow down in worship. And I think that is comparable in some sense to the Word of God, as we will cover. Remember this when we get into uh, witnessing on uh, Sunday morning in the first hour, or, yeah, first hour when we're in 1 Corinthians, that I will talk about the fact that the Word of God is self-authenticating. When we communicate the Scriptures to an unbeliever, they may not believe it, they may reject it, they may say, well, how can you prove it's the Word of God? But the testimony of Scripture is such that when God speaks, people know God is speaking. Just as the every human being knows on the basis of the nonverbal communication of God in the creation in Romans 1, that everyone knows God exists, but they suppress that in unrighteousness, the testimony of Scripture is that the Word of God also bears that authority behind it, that it is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, it comes with certain baggage that is self-authenticating. Whether or not people choose to believe it or not is another thing, but they, in the depths of their soul, they know it's the Word of God, and they are therefore held accountable for how they handle it. So we come to this, this verse, and Daniel is in a state of prostration, and then he is going to be rudely, not rudely, but he is going to be strongly awakened by an angel who appears in verse 10. This is a different personage from the pre-incarnate Christ, from the personage that appears in verse 5. He's been unconscious, and now he says, suddenly a hand touched me. He doesn't say, his hand touched me, which would be, uh, a reference back to the figure, the personage in verse 5. He says, a hand touched me. This is another hand, and, and the word for touch there is, um, is a word that doesn't mean simply to touch. This isn't the angel reaching over and just gently tapping him on the shoulder. This is the Hebrew word naga, which means to touch, but it also means to strike or to shake. And so the word here, he touched me, is really uh, sort of weak and pusillanimous. Uh, a hand shook me, hit me, uh, probably ca- uh, comparable to someone who goes into hysterics, and you slap them in order to bring them to a sober consciousness. And so the angel here uh, comes up to Daniel and shakes him hard to get his attention. Then in verse, uh, then it says, he, the hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And the word for trembling is the hithil imperfect of the Hebrew word nuah. And that word means to shake, to recoil, to, to, um, uh, ha- have the shakes. 
And he is uh, completely upset by this so that he is ju- he's not just trembling, but he is shaking all over as a result of, of uh, not only the vision, but also this uh, shaking by the, by the angel. So the angel comes up and clobbers him to get his attention because God is trying to communicate something to Daniel. God the Son has revealed a certain amount of information to Daniel, but he doesn't understand it. It just comes as sort of a, an overwhelming block of sound. And now as is the standard procedure throughout Revelation, remember he's seen visions, he didn't understand that an interpreting angel would come and interpret and tell him exactly what it meant. Here he has heard the noise, he's heard the sound of the revelation from the pre-incarnate Son of God, but he it hasn't understood. He's just been sort of an audiovisual overload, as it were, and so this angel is going to come and interpret that for him. So this is a time of teaching, a time of instruction, and there's a couple of principles we could we could pick up from this, and that is that before you can start. Before you can start learning, you have to uh, be in a sober, stable mindset. You have to be, you can't just be reacting to the information. That was what was happening with Daniel in verse 9. He was uh, asleep in verse, excuse me, back in verse 8. He's, no strength remains in him. His vigors turned to frailty. He is uh, passing out in verse 9. And before he can learn the word, he's got to be in a sober, and by that I don't mean non-alcoholic tupor, I mean that he is uh, of a stable, focused mindset, ready to concentrate and ready to uh, learn and to be taught what the vision means. So the interpreting angel is preparing uh, Daniel for some instruction. And he, the interpreting angel addresses Daniel in verse 11. Then he, that is the interpreting angel, probably Gabriel. It doesn't say, though, but heretofore in the book it's been Gabriel, so that's a strong possibility, but it doesn't say for sure, so we can't be certain. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem. Now, that is, uh, let me see, verse 11. Well, I left one out in the overhead slide. Verse 11 says, uh, he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, that is the uh, New King James translation. I think the Old King James said, uh, Daniel, a beautiful man, uh, and the New American Standard translates it, Daniel, man of high esteem, or man of treasures. Literally, the Hebrew word is chamad, and it means pleasant. It can also mean in some passages someone who desires something and has a negative connotation of coveting or lusting after something. But the primary meaning of this adjective is desirableness, something that is precious, something that is uh, expresses uh, something that's desirable, something that can be delighted in. So when the angel is looking at Daniel, he's saying, Daniel, you are someone in whom we as angels and in whom God takes delight. He is not looking at Daniel on the outside. At this time, Daniel is an old man, and he, even though he still had a lot of strength in his physical body, he is still quite aged and would not be in his prime and would not look his best. 
So God is, what we learn from this, it's an important principle that our real beauty lies on what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. This, again, emphasizes the fact that throughout this whole passage, the things that we can take from this are emphases on how God looks at history, how God looks at individuals, not just how we look at them in terms of a simple, materialistic, overt, or superficial appearance. The angel is focusing on what the priority is. Now, this is something that you parents can take home. What God is concerned about is developing the soul on the inside and what makes his soul attractive. What makes that soul uh, desirable is that Daniel has been taking in the Word of God. It is the Word of God that has shaped his thinking. It is the Word of God that has shaped his soul that makes it desirable and delightful in terms of God's uh, scale of values. So when we look at someone, we need to realize that what God is trying to promote in, in our children and ourselves is an understanding of his word, and that is what has ultimate value because that's the only thing that has enduring value. It doesn't matter how much you succeed in life. It doesn't matter how well you develop your talents. It doesn't matter how well you develop your athletic skills. It doesn't matter how well you develop your artistic skills. If you are not developing that which ultimately matters in terms of the beauty of your own soul based on Bible doctrine, All of that other is just a waste of time. So the principle here is that we have to get our priorities right, and it doesn't mean don't spend time developing these other things, but that when you have conflicts of priorities and conflicts of schedule, the issue is choosing doctrine over everything else. See, what destroys most Christians It destroys most pastors, it destroys most ministries, and it destroys most Christian lives is not necessarily the choice between sin and righteousness. Now, that's what legalists always want to reduce everything to, is you're choosing sin, and, and we all know horror stories where people got caught up in certain overt sins, and that destroyed marriage, or it destroyed a ministry, or it destroyed a church. But where people really destroy their own spiritual lives is because rather than choosing the best, they just choose the good. It's not that what they're doing is inherently wrong or sinful. It's not wrong for a pastor, as a pastor of a church, it's not necessarily wrong to spend time visiting people in the hospital or visiting those who are newcomers to the church or spending time doing so many of the people things that so many pastors do. But what happens is that takes them out of the study And they're choosing to spend time with people rather than spend time in the Word, and then they don't fulfill the command that Jesus Christ gave every pastor, and that is to feed my sheep. Because if the pastor is not spending his time studying the Word, he can't feed the sheep. So a pastor demonstrates his love for the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for the congregation by studying and feeding the sheep, not by going out and doing so many of the social things and so many of the people oriented things that many pastors do. Now, it's not that those things are sinful. It's just that they are not putting their priority on the things that God puts the priority on. And in that sense, you could uh, think that it is a sin for a pastor to spend his time doing the wrong thing and not feeding a congregation. 
parents do the same thing. They make choices for what their kids are going to be involved in, and when they make those choices, then it keeps them out of Bible class on Wednesday night. It may create problems on Sunday. Whatever it might be, all of a sudden they're communicating by how they plan their children's schedule that doctrine really isn't as important as the pastor says he is. I mean, the pastor wants you to make doctrine your life. Well, you know, he's a pastor and that's his job. And people often rationalize it that way. But see, that's not the pastor's opinion. That's God's opinion. Because what God's going to say at the end of your life is, what do you have of value that's going to last for eternity? And the only thing that we have of value that lasts for eternity is what's produced in our soul as a result of learning and applying doctrine. So Daniel is said to be a man of high esteem, a man in whom God delights, whose soul is desirable to God, and that's based on the doctrine that is that is in his soul. I remember years ago I went to a church, and I was candidating at the church, and one of the uh, leaders in the church made the comment to me, which at the time I, I did not do what I wanted to do, which was, uh, my gut reaction was it made me so nauseous I really wanted to throw up in its face, but I didn't do that. And I maintained a little poise. And he said, you know, it's great to teach all these wonderful things. But, you know, all everybody just sits, soaks, and sours. You know, they just love these little phrases with the alliteration there. They just sit there, soak up the Word, soak up all this teaching, and then it just sours because they never do anything with it. And, you know, it just reflected such an abysmal ignorance about the entire learning process that that I just knew there were serious problems with this guy's understanding of the spiritual life and how you get there. Uh, Most people don't realize it, but to apply anything in life, you have to learn about a hundred times more information about the subject than you apply. Whether it's carpentry, whether it's medicine, whether it's preaching, whether it's the Word of God, whether it has to do with management or leadership or teaching school. or We know a tremendous amount, and we only apply at any given time just half a percent or one percent of that knowledge. But the more the reservoir of knowledge is, the greater the reservoir of knowledge is, then the more we can apply. But we have to learn so much more, and it's important to because as we study all these things, and, and for those of you who teach in prep school, One of the things that I try to do when I teach and that you should try to emulate is constantly uh, reminding people of certain key principles and repeating certain key things over and over again, just in one line, two line reminders. But that's part of what teaching is, is that when you come to Bible class, you're going to be reminded of a certain amount of information that you may have heard a hundred times. You're going to hear some things that are going to hit you a, a fresh way. But one of the important things is, that you're going to leave here, I hope, every Bible class being reminded that God's in control of history, God's in control of your life, God's provided you with a solution to every problem you're going to face, and if you're going to get anywhere in life, you have to make that the number one priority, and you're going to apply it day in and day out. And you're going to be reminded of that. I don't care what else we learn. The rest, in some sense, are just details. But we have to learn those details. But the core of what we learn and are reminded of every time, especially some of you when you've gone through difficult times, whether it's unemployment, financial problems, emotional problems, marriage problems, is that God is always faithful to you no matter how difficult life may be at that particular time. But it is only the doctrine in your soul that is going to give you the kind of stability you need in those difficult, difficult times. So 
to get there, you have to learn, you have to study, you have to meditate on uh, continuously on what is being taught from this pulpit. Now it says, Daniel, man of high esteem, or delightful man, understand the words that I am about to tell you. So he says to him, understand, this is the Hebrew word, bean, B-I-N, bean. And it is the hithil uh, stem, which is the causative stem. So he is telling him, in a sense, to cause yourself to understand the words. In other words, pay attention, focus, and concentrate. Interesting. Apply this to your theory of learning. If you're going to learn anything, you have to focus. You have to concentrate. You have to think about it. You have to cause yourself to understand. This fits in with what I taught on uh, Sunday morning about the uh, grace learning spiral. Remember, in learning doctrine, it is not simply a matter of, of your own natural abilities. A pastor teacher teaches, and then the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. But you have to understand it. Now, the Scripture never specifically states that Daniel was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament sense, but in writing of Scripture, I think we can infer uh, that safely that he was filled with the Spirit. And yet, even though he ha- he's given all of this information, he's given revelation from angels, he's given visions, he's given re- revelation from the pre-incarnate Christ, he is still told ordered by the uh, interpreting angel to understand it. Exercise your own brain cells. Don't just sit there and soak it up and let it go. come in one ear and out your fingertips on your pen into your notes. But think about it. Understand it. Concentrate. Focus on it. You need to develop a discernment from this so that you can understand what and, and actually perceive what I am doing in history, says the Lord. Understand the words that I am about to tell you. And then he says, in the next verse, very interesting statement, he says, and stand upright. In other words, posture matters. Your posture, your physical attitude and expression towards learning is, a, is important. One of the things that uh, I have emphasized through the years is that it's important how we dress when we come to Bible class. We live in an extremely casual culture now. I remember when I was in high school, uh, it was a, now Wednesday night's one thing, Sunday's different, you know. When I was in high school, it was, uh, I mean, my parents never once allowed me, except we down in Texas, we had Go Texan days when the rodeo came in every February. But that was the only time in 12 years of school I was allowed to wear uh, blue jeans to school. I mean, and, and that was pretty much true for probably about 80% of the student body back then. And guys had to have hair a certain length. They couldn't touch the ears or touch the collar. And girls had to wear dresses. And it was my senior year that a bunch of the, you know, that was the era of the hippies and the campus radicals and all that. And they forced some uh, lawsuits against the Houston Independent School District, and they had to do away with all of the dress code. It made a tremendous difference, and I remember hearing people say, well, how you dress really doesn't matter about how you learn. And then you go to college, and, of course, nobody ever goes to a classroom in college in anything, but especially down in Texas, but cut-offs and sandals and T-shirts, and you shave maybe occasionally if 
Uh, of course, I was in ROTC, so you, you had to shave a little more than every day, than uh, just once a week. But, you know, your, your presentation was, was not an issue. Then I went to seminary. And I went, in a, went to Dallas Seminary, and, and Dallas Seminary had a dress coat. You can't go to class unless you have on a coat and tie. Period. And that's because they're training men to be professional pastors and ministers, and they have to learn to interact and interact with a world of professionals because that's what they're going to be when they go out into the world. Now, I don't know of any other seminary in the world that had a dress code like that, but I'm telling you, the attitude in the classroom the first day was so impressive to walk onto campus and have a thousand men, because back in those days, Dallas still had a biblical approach and no women were allowed in any of the classes outside of a few wives who could sit in with their husbands. So you walked onto campus, there are a thousand men on campus all wearing suits and ties and going to class. And there was such an attitude of professionalism there and such an attitude of respect for the pastor, for the professors in the classroom in fact, I never once remember the years that I was there doing my uh, THM work, uh, my Master's of Theology work, I never once remember uh, any student ever addressing a professor by anything other than Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so. Now, I'll show you the difference. Six years later when I went back, there were many changes. By the time I went back to work on my, my Ph.D. in '86. The administ- a lot of the administration had changed, and what had happened is guys who were in my class or a few years ahead of me who were, you know, the same hippie generation that tore down the dress codes back in the late 60s had now come through seminary, and they were going into uh, administrative positions in, the, uh, in seminary. And so these things were changing. When I went back on campus, you know, they, they still had the dress code, and to my knowledge, they still have the dress code. But when I went back to campus, they were calling their professors by their first name. I never could call Dr. Ryrie Chuck. I don't think anybody else could either. He wasn't there by that time. And I I just couldn't imagine it. But they were calling their professors by their first name, and there was this informality there. And, you know, there's an importance to formality in the classroom because it teaches respect for the teacher and respect for authority. Now, I've got a point for all of this because one of the things that's come up that we've been talking about lately is how our kids should address teachers in the classroom downstairs in prep school. And we, we talked about the thing because some, some, some of you parents say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you can call the, your teachers by their first name. And others say, well, then you've got this absurd thing that's come in the last 20 years, Mr. Jim or Mr. Bill, and where you use that first name. And, and I've never understood that because on the one hand, you're, it's like you're trying to straddle both worlds. You want to have formality and respect, but you want informality and friendship. And you, 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 those of you who've been in the military, you know, you don't call your superior officers Captain Jim or, you know, Colonel Bill or Admiral John. You use a title with the last name. And one of the things that we're trying to communicate and teach to kids in prep school is respect for the teacher, 
Respect for the person who is handling the Word of God. Respect for authority, because this is part of what has to play out uh, throughout their life. And as parents, you need to recognize that's something you need to be addressing your kids. Don't go with the flow of our silly, stupid, superficial culture that says that these things don't matter and that your kids can call other adults by their first name, because what you're, what you're doing in, in a very innocuous way, in a very subtle way, is you are preventing your children from learning vital principles about respect for authority, respect for adults, and respect, as they used to say when I was a kid, I haven't heard this in a long time, respect for your elders. So that's an important thing, and that's, that's part of the policy that we're trying to implement in prep school is for the kids to call their teachers Mr. Sexton or Mr. Dillon or whomever their teacher is, and that way to develop some some level of respect for authority and respect for the teacher. And that's the kind of thing that we're seeing here. The angel says to, to Daniel, you, you need to understand this. You need to focus. You need to concentrate. In order to do that, you have to have the right posture. I want you to stand upright. You know, stand up, listen, pay attention, for I have been sent to you. In other words, he doesn't want Daniel to miss anything, wants him to focus completely on everything that the uh, this interpreting angel is saying. Then in verse 12, the angel says to Daniel, he, the angel, said to me, do not fear Daniel. For Daniel still shaking in his sandals or his boots or whatever he had on. Do not fear Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. Now, let's go back and look at the, at verse 2. There Daniel wrote, in those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. So he started this prayer 21 days ago or three weeks ago. Now most of us think, and sometimes I've heard people say, well, I was going through a lot of difficult times in life and things were horrible and I just kept praying and praying to God and he must have been worried about somebody else because he didn't seem to be paying attention to me. Now, let's do a comparison. If you look at Daniel 9, where Daniel spends his time praying, fasting, we've studied fasting, the purpose was to set aside the details of life, to focus and concentrate on your study. When he finally got his study together and he focuses his prayer, we can go back and read that prayer, and it would probably take 30 seconds to a minute and a half to read that prayer. And we know that almost instantly... Gabriel shows up and interrupts him in the middle of the prayer. So it doesn't take long for our prayer to get to the throne of God, and it doesn't take long for God to respond. But there are times when other factors interfere, and that's what we see right here in, uh, in, in the, the coming verses. The angel says, don't fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand. Now that, we need to understand that the word there for heart is the Hebrew word lave, which has to do here with the thinking. You don't understand with your emotions. This is one of those verses that demonstrates that heart means the arena of thought. You understand with the mentality of the soul. So he set his heart, and that term set indicates volition. He made a choice. He determined that he was going to understand something. He was going to understand what God was doing in Israel right now in terms of the problems that these returning Jews were having in Jerusalem. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, see, in order to learn anything, you have to have humility. 
Humility goes with authority orientation and grace orientation, and you can't learn anything if you think you already know the answer. And if a student puts himself on the same level as his instructor by informality, then it destroys humility. It is a very subtle attack on humility because all of a sudden you've brought the teacher down to your level and you're up to the teacher's level, and so this person is no longer viewed as the one who is authoritative in the subject. So there's an emphasis here on the importance of of humility and authority orientationship for learning. You set your heart, you made a choice, you made a commitment to understand and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard 21 days ago. Your prayer was heard, and God dispatched me to answer the prayer. Now, let's, we have to backtrack here a minute because, see, this happens in our lives. We pray, and nothing happens, and weeks go by or months go by, and perhaps there's something going on not unlike what's taking place here. It's not that God hasn't heard. It's that there is another dimension of the battle that's taking place, part of the angelic conflict. And here we see this in this particular instance. Uh, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. Now let's go on to verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So for these three weeks, there has been a battle unseen, but a battle royal between this angel and another angel, a demonic power that is associated with the kingdom of Persia. What we learn here is that this angel is called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. This is not the, the human leader of Persia. You don't have an angel fighting a human being. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is a demon who is assigned to the territory of Persia and who is particularly responsible for influencing the domestic affairs, the foreign affairs, and the decisions of the emperor. Now, the thing to notice here is that even though we know there's this cause-effect relationship, and there is an influence going on between the angelic sphere and the uh, physical realm, we don't know exactly what that is. And at no point in this does Daniel try to respond to this by saying, okay, now I need to start praying that the demons would be hindered. See, he's to continue praying what he prayed. We need to recognize this is going on in, in the battle, but you don't pray to that effect because we don't, we can't see it. But we need to know that it's going on. What's happening today in charismatic circles under the guise of of new teaching, what I call the neo-spiritual warfare teaching, is that they are extrapolating from these verses uh, some doctrines that really have no foundation in Scripture and end up putting the church in a terrible position. I think it really demonizes churches and demonizes Christians. It makes them much more vulnerable to uh, to demonic uh, influence because they have given up the truth of God's Word and they're completely outside the protection of doctrine. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, in other words, Michael is the archangel, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So you have this one uh, angel, and here he says kings of Persia, indicating other rulers of Persia, and these are all demonic forces. So he's left alone, he's being surrounded, and Michael, who's always associated with the protection of Israel, Michael has to come in order to help him, and they have to do this battle in the heavenlies between 
the uh, holy angels and these demons before they can break through this opposition and get to Daniel. Now, this really opens us up to some important doctrines, and that is the fact that Satan is constantly trying to influence and destroy various civilizations and kingdoms, and he does this through the divine institutions. Now, let's review the five divine institutions. The first divine institution is human individual responsibility. We are all responsible for the decisions that we make. The second divine institution is marriage. The third divine institution is family. The fourth divine institution is uh, human government. And the fifth divine institution is national distinctions or nations, that God authorizes individual nations, not internationalism or, or globalism. So Satan tries to attack these through various different ways. For example, in the fifth divine institution, Satan's attack here is always towards some form of internationalism. In the church, this takes the form of ecumenism. Notice I didn't say that the church is a divine institution. The reason the church is not a divine institution is the definition of divine institutions are institutions that God has established in human history for the stability and preservation of the human race. They are for believer and unbeliever alike. The church does not fit that category of a divine institution. These are for believers and unbelievers alike. But you have certain manifestations that are parallel. So you have uh, internationalism, globalism, the breakdown of national distinctions. You have uh, the development of world courts, and, and we see that developing more and more in Europe. You really see it develop after World War II with the... With the um, uh, Nuremberg trials, and I had serious reservations about whether the Nuremberg trials were, were legitimate. I think one of the one of the uh, uh, American uh, generals uh, observed that after the war and said, "Thank God we won." You know, it, you know, the Nuremberg trials just put just really uh, sort of coded revenge with the guise of uh, of judicial uh, accuracy. So that's something that. Uh, Breaks down. Now we want to go to world courts. See, that's where Nuremberg led was having world courts where nations are responsible, and you have these uh, world court now developing, and uh, that just began in Holland in the last uh, two or three months. Human government. Satan attacks uh, human government through corrupting police, uh, corrupting the military and military leadership, and we certainly saw a lot of problems in that area in the 90s when a previous uh, presidential administration made so many decisions that, that caused really good military leaders to take early retirement, and that, that robs the officer corps of good leaders. You have uh, assaults on your intelligence networks, like in, in so much that we're hearing about today in the FBI and the CIA, and these problems go back to several different administrations, but they, some of them go back to, to even the late, late 70s. Uh, one, one person has made an accurate observation the other night that what really the root of what, of, uh, what had happened on 9-11 is the fact that 
um, when we had the Iran hostage situation in the late 70s, the way we handled that, the way that president at that time failed to handle that situation, taught the Muslims that we were weak and that we could be had. And that's the root. And so these kinds of things, the, the weakening of our intelligence services has its root not just in, in the last five or ten years, but in things that have gone on in the last uh, 20 years or so. You have assaults on the family, all kinds of different breakdowns that occur in, in, uh, in the family. And some of this comes from government. For example... A uh, passage I ran across the other day that most people don't ever pay attention to, so I thought it would be a good illustration here. Second Corinthians 12:14, Paul writes, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. For, and here's the principle, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. He refers to that as a universal principle. You see, your response, part of your responsibility as a parent is not only to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not only to teach them authority orientation, not only to teach them doctrine, not only to teach them how to live life, but your responsibility is to store up wealth to pass on to your children when you die. Now, I heard some idiot one time say, well, I hope my money and my life run out at the same time. Well, haven't you ever studied the Bible? The Bible says your job as a parent is to die as wealthy as you can be to pass it on to your parents, I mean to your children, that the parents are to provide for the children even in their old age by saving up and taking care of themselves. But see, what happens in uh, modern government with Social Security Administration is that uh, most of us here who are under under the retirement age our Social Security money, that, that amount that you never see, that you don't realize is really yours, that the government takes out for Social Security, is being paid to your parents who are retired. See, the children are saving up for their parents now. That's just the opposite of what Scripture says. So the whole concept of Social Security runs 180 degrees opposite to what Scripture teaches. And Scripture teaches personal responsibility and parents are to lay up for the future. And Proverbs, in fact, states that, that it is, that blessed is the man who leaves an inheritance for his children. So we've got things all in uh, reverse in our society. And that's just one reason why, how the government attacks the divine institution of a family. Then you have attacks on marriage, all kinds of attacks from the marriage tax, where if you're married, you have to pay more income tax than if the two of you were separate and single and living in sin. So that breaks down marriage and other problem, other ways in which uh, the codes written in welfare discourages uh, single parents from getting married. These kinds of things are ways the government breaks down marriage and individual responsibility. We've just seen so many examples where uh, people just aren't held accountable anymore. In fact, uh, you go out and you sue somebody, and we just saw an egregious example of that on the news today where these Middle Eastern-looking individuals are suing the airlines through that wonderful godly organization called the American Civil Liberties Union, and a heavy note of sarcasm there. Uh, and, and they're they're suing the airlines because somehow they were inconvenienced. And one of these individuals was on the uh, being interviewed this morning, and he made the comment that well, and he was he's not even uh, an Arab or a Muslim, but he certainly looked that way. He's from Bangladesh, an obvious case of mistaken identity. And he also turned out to be an American citizen. He was born here, but that's that's his heritage. So he 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 looked the part. 
but he's uh, out. For, he can't really understand why uh, he would be so inconvenienced. Well, I like the view of the America of the uh, excuse me the Arab businessman who is an, is living here in this country on a visa, and he said, "Look, I want to get home to my parents. I don't care how many times." They pull me off the airplane. You have to realize that it wasn't red-headed Irish women who committed the crimes of September 11th. These are Arabs, they're Middle Easterners, and they're Muslims, and we need to be racially profiling. And I want them to. I don't care how many times it affects me personally, because I know that if they're doing that, then I have a better chance of getting home to my wife. And so the other, the, the, these, these people who are suing through the ACLU are just self-absorbed, and it's just another way Satan is using things like that to attack this nation and to attack freedom. So there are these things that are going on uh, behind the scenes as Satan seeks to tear down nations, destroy freedom, and, in effect, uh, have his agenda in history as opposed to uh, God's agenda in history. So in Daniel 10.13, we see a picture. God sort of rolls back. The, the screen, as it were, so we can see what takes place behind the scenes and how the fallen angels, how the demons who are assigned to various empires are influencing uh, human history. But nevertheless, it never gives us the right to bail out of our responsibility and say that somehow the things that are happening are just the result of demons or just the result of... and somehow that we have to pray down these demons. That was not Daniel's response. That is never authorized in Scripture. It is simply to cause us to understand that there are more causative factors in human history than human decisions and human error. And when we get involved in warfare, there is another dimension. It's You can't boil it down to just physical causation. So this brings us to the doctrine of the angelic conflict. And let's just do a quick review of the doctrine of the angelic conflict. Point number one, the starting point for understanding the angelic conflict is always related to the doctrine of sin and evil. Evil is not normal to the universe or to creation. God did not create the universe evil. God is good, and God can create nothing less than good. God can is absolute good and perfect righteousness, and whatever he creates has to be absolute good and perfect righteousness. So evil and sin are introduced secondarily into the universe and creation by the creature's decision, first by the decision of Satan in his revolt against, against God, and then by Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Scripture there is Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, and Isaiah uh, chapter 14, verses uh, uh, 12 and following. It began not by man's... uh, Evil is not inherent in creation. See, if you reject what Scripture teaches, then you always run into the liberal or to somebody out there who's looking for something, some reason to reject Christianity. They'll They'll look at children who have been... Uh, maimed or, or diseased. They'll look at the horrible things that happened in an event like uh, September 11th, and they'll say, well, how could a good God let that happen? Well, wait a minute. If you throw out Christianity, you, the only thing you're left with is a view of the universe where this is a normal and natural occurrence. 
This is part of the warp and woof of reality, and uh, ultimately you don't have any way to distinguish between good and evil. To even talk about good and evil presupposes the existence of the God of the Bible, because without the God of the Bible, you don't have a standard uh, to use to judge what good, what is good and what is evil. That's why in Eastern religions like Hinduism, you end up, uh, and, and in Buddhism, you end up with your uh, yin-yang symbol that is usually a circle with a S-looking line between it. One side's dark, one side's white. And what that symbolizes is that ultimate reality is one, but it's two-sided. There's a good side and a bad side, sort of like the Star Wars Force that has the good side of the Force and the dark side of the Force. But it's ultimately one reality. You can go back to the uh, what well, used to be the second, I think it was The Empire Strikes Back, the second Star Wars movie. And, uh, and Yoda is teaching young Luke Skywalker that, that all is one. And it all flows out of this view of, of uh, ultimate reality is monism. And in monism, you ultimately don't have a way to distinguish between good and evil because all is one. Yeah, I think there was a uh, Beatles song that George Harrison sang, I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. That's pure monism. That was back after they saw the uh, Maharashi Mahesh Yogi in India. See, some of you older people remember that. You young, you just think that's ancient history. But see, that was communicating to our generation the Hinduism, this monistic belief of the uh, 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 of Hinduism. And ultimately, there's no distinction between good and bad. If I am you and you are me, see, all distinctions break down. So the person that is talking to you that says, oh, how can a good God let this happen? Say, well, wait a minute, where do you get the idea of good? What do you mean by good? Who determines what good is? Where does that value come from? How can you, if you reject the God of the Bible, how can you explain the existence of evil? You know, Immediately counterattack. Put them on the defensive. I'm so tired of Christians being put on the defensive. Put them on the defensive. Say, okay, you know, let's say there is no God of the Bible. Let's say he doesn't exist. Now you're left with Darwinianism. Where did evil come from? How can you distinguish it and call it evil? Because now you're left with the fact that, that the main causative event in Darwinian evolution is death, the survival of the fittest. To get survival, something's got to die. So you've got to make that point. It's a real subtle point. Survival of the fittest means something dies. Death is the mechanism of advance in evolution. Death is suffering. Death is evil. But in evolution, it's the source of the good because it produces, it produces advance. So you see, you have to turn it back on them and say, look, and you're, you may question Christianity and say, how in the world can, this, can, can a good God let this happen? But okay, let's admit you that you're right. There is no God. The Bible's wrong. You're left with your view of Darwinistic evolution. Everything's natural. You can't even talk about good and evil. What are you talking about? Now that you've got their attention that they're really an idiot, now maybe they can learn something. See, it comes back to that principle. comes back to that basic principle that, that you have to be humble before you can learn anything. So, well, we don't have time to finish up on the angelic conflict tonight, but we'll come back and we'll get into that. And I've got some great uh, quotes from you from a book on um, spiritual warfare that talks all about how to engage territorial spirits. I'm sure you're going to find that.
quite enlightening because so many churches are practicing that, and we'll critique that a little bit next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word tonight, to realize that you're in control of all things, and above all, to recognize our need to humble ourselves and to recognize that we need to learn your word. We need to be uh, have our thinking completely renovated by the truth of your word. Uh, help us to realize that, that life is not simply uh, defined in terms of what we see, what we perceive, but that there is another dimension. And that we recognize that there is an angelic conflict raging around us and that our responsibility as believers is to continue to walk steadfastly in your word, not to get engaged in some kind of offensive action against demons or spirits, praying down strongholds or any of the other silly things that people come up with. But our job is to learn the word and apply it in our lives and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.